Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Geneviève Moret. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. Collectors are a breed apart. Quite commonly, their motivations are not simply for personal gain, but as a means of ensuring that future generations can enjoy the fruits of their labors in ways that can only be imagined. In this episode, the second edition of our donor interview feature, we speak to author, comic book historian, and retired LAC archivist John Bell, who generously donated his Hulk-sized comic book collection to LAC in 1996. His collection includes over 4,000 comic books, ranging from Second World War comics to 21st century zines and related ephemera. Is that your opening panel? Yes, there? that is the opening. And then, don't you think our logo is pretty cool? I think that's really cool. John Bell traveled to Ottawa from his home in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, for the launch of the LAC exhibition Alter Ego Comics and Canadian Identity. LAC Special Collections librarian and curator of the exhibition, Megan Scanlon, gave John a quick tour before sitting down with him to talk about the amassing of his extraordinary collection. Yeah, I think it's a great idea, great concept. Thank you. So where, where do people move from there? Yeah, I like this is the starting point, okay. but it doesn't really matter because the three themes are sort of independent of each yes. other. She started the conversation by asking him about his upbringing and when his love for comic books began. I was born in Montreal and um, lived there until I was about uh, 10. And then my parents were both Maritimers. My mom from PEI, my dad from Nova Scotia. And we used to make the annual pilgrimage back to the Maritimes every year. And, but in 62, we moved to Halifax and my parents returned home. For me, I was being wrenched out of kind of a utopia for kids downtown Montreal I lived on a, a base for uh, well it wasn't a base but a housing really interesting housing complex called Benny Farm which was at um, Sherbrooke and Cavendish Boulevard and um, it looked a lot like an army base and uh, had to brick three-story housing for veterans and but each each apartment also had their own garden lot so it was very progressive in that way. But we had huge, we used to call it the back 40, this huge areas where the kids could play. So it was one of those places you just walked out the door and you had kids to play with. And, uh, but the other thing I should note about that experience and this growing up in Montreal in the 50s, that comic books were everywhere. But I also was a TV baby, right? Broadcasting, I think, in Canada started in Montreal in 52, the year I was born. And, and, and TV was a pretty important part of our lives, but comics were more important. And um, they were everywhere. They were in the grocery stores, they were in the tobacco shops, the drug stores. And, um, you know, I was forever harassing my father for money to buy more comics. And um, he had uh, interesting ideas about comics. He had, he had read about Wortham and the, and, and he got caught up in the, um, the anti-comics uh, moral panic. Dr. Frederick Wortham was an American psychiatrist and author who spearheaded a campaign against comic books, which he felt were a corrupting influence on youth and would lead to juvenile delinquency. 
His 1954 book, Seduction of the Innocent, made a big splash at the time, but it was later revealed that he had willfully distorted data in order to support his hypotheses. As a result, much of his work has been discredited. But he, he actually liked the medium itself. And later on in life, uh, one of the things I'd give him every Christmas was an Asterix uh, album. He, he loved Asterix. And, uh, and he used to read the comics. He was a big little Abner fan and all that. But so for, for me, my reading of comics was kind of uh, policed by them, my parents, especially him. I don't think my mother really cared. But he was determined that we wouldn't read what he classified as weird comics. So what was I allowed to read? I was allowed to read Classics Illustrated, kind of a bluffer's guide to world literature. Um, and those were like graphic novels almost, right? I think they ran to about 48 pages or more. So uh, I remember crying over some of those. Uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, I was devastated. And uh, some Victor Hugos, you know, I, I, they were really quite powerful. But we were also allowed to read um, funny animal comics and uh but superheroes no way they were they were weird uh anything related to crime or horror of course there weren't that many around by that point uh because of the comics code but uh, so no weird comics for weird comics i had to uh sneak down to my friend jackie's house jackie could go to the corner store and buy just about anything he wanted so, you know, you could buy tons of trading cards and comics and any comic you wanted. I can remember late 61 reading up to that point the greatest graphic narrative I'd ever read. It was just so stupendous. It was breathtaking. Fantastic Four number one. Fantastic Four number one, that is, that's a, sort of the dawn of the Silver Age. It right? is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Marvel uh, Age of Comics, yeah. But this led to some difficulties in the future, because once we moved to Halifax, I had a bit of a Marvel addiction going, but I, uh, I, there was no Jackie figure in Halifax. So how was I going to get my Marvel comics, right? And uh, there were some stores around our area, the south end of Halifax, where they would sell comics for five cents, uh, older comics. There'd be boxes in the back of the store. So I would be picking through these things, and um, I found Amazing Fantasy number 15. The first appearance of Spider-Man. And I had the first Iron Man story. And later on, I also found the first Hulk in one of these boxes for a nickel, which was great. Um, but I knew I had to stash these things, right? Because if my old man found me with these <laughs> weird comics, I would be in big trouble. So I, I found a place, uh, we lived in a kind of an old Victorian house in a flat and there were lots of little nooks and crannies and, and cupboards. And so I thought I had these things extremely well hidden, but much to my horror, one, one Saturday, my dad was looking for something in one of these cabinets where the stash was. And um, lo and behold, he found those two, the, the first Iron Man and the first Spider-Man. No. And, no! <laughs> he ripped them. This was like one of the great traumas of my life. Uh, that was horrifying from a historical perspective it really as well. Is. Oh, and believe me, later, well, I'll tell you more about that later, but um, I did tease my mom for years over, uh, because I all, eventually what happened was I, I knew, okay, this was a turning point in my life. I was probably about 12, then 13. I started looking around for a, a, an income. Uh, I, and I was going to make my stand once I had, uh, you know, a flow of money. 
And uh, so I got a paper route. And eventually, you know, I had money. I could buy my own comics. Now I had to fight for the right to read whatever I wanted. And I guess probably when I was about 12, 13, 13, I stood up and I said, I'm going to read whatever I want to read and I'm going to buy whatever I want to buy and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I won the argument. So then I started amassing uh, a Marvel collection. I had um, probably every Marvel comic, except for Millie the Model, and I even had a couple of Millie the Models, uh, from about 65 to, we'll say late 64 to around late 66, early 67. I had every Marvel comic. When I eventually left home, uh, of course, I got uh, diverted by other pursuits uh, as, a, as a teenager eventually and put my comic collection aside. But it was still, most of these comics had only been read once. There were no, it wasn't so fetishistic as it is now at the plastic bags and the boxes and the acid-free backing boards and all that. But um, I kept them in good shape and they were in a box and they were neatly stacked. Anyway, that stuff I all left. I left all those behind when I eventually moved out at about the age of uh, 18, 17, 18. But not long after, maybe three, four years later, I started, there was a lot of media attention devoted to auctions and the kind of prices that the old golden age American comics were, were getting. Like, you know, imagine a Superman selling for, you know, action selling for $1,000. And uh, so then I thought, Oh my God, those comics, I've left them at home. They're in, they're in a dry room in the, in the basement. They're gonna be there. And uh, I went back home, talked to my mom, and I was headed downstairs to see my pile of comics, my Marvel collection. And uh, it had been thrown out like about two weeks after I left. Oh. And uh, so I did tease her for years after that. I said, you know what? Your grandsons yeah. could go to university on those comics you threw in the garbage. And uh, I hope somebody found them on the curb and they didn't just go in the landfill, but who knows? <laughs> I wonder how many people have a similar story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just goes to show comics have not always been <laughs> valued. No. <laughs> at all. <laughs> when you started uh, working on your collection of Canadian comics, um, you set out to document the entire history of Canadian comics. And I, so I wondered... How did you start? Like, were there some easy targets that you were looking for, or were you really just starting from a point of very little knowledge? Or it was really unknown territory. I mean, I think what led me to begin that collection, uh, and again, it was very much a research collection when I started. But the I was working on seventy-five. I started working at the Dalhousie University Archives. And the summer before that, that was in the fall after I graduated, I, um, a collector of Golden Age comics in Halifax had a display in the library, the Killam Library. And um, I found that quite fascinating. He had uh, amassed a remarkable collection of uh, early Golden, of timely Marvel-related uh, Golden Age comics. And some of them were in like extraordinary condition. He had worked at a, um, a bookstore in Halifax that um, bought comics and resold them. And they would pay you like a nickel for a comic. But people were coming in there with boxes of Golden Age comics. 
And he was quite happy to buy them for a nickel and then buy them from the store for a dime or whatever it was. And uh, so he had an amazing collection. But he also turned me on to something called the Buyer's Guide. The Buyer's Guide, you know, prior to the emergence of the web and all that, the Buyer's Guide was uh, what they call, uh, was called then an ad zine. But it was a tabloid newspaper, often two or three sections, running to well over 100 pages of small, there was some editorial content, but essentially it was just advertising. Uh, some big dealers would have pages, but a lot of it was just a collector selling stuff they weren't interested in and a little, an eighth of a page ad. So there were hundreds of people all over North America advertising in this thing. And um, it was kind of an eye opener for me. I, I didn't realize that there were, had been, like that's where I first encountered Gene Day, Dave Sim. Dave Sim in those days was advertising the buyer's guide that he would do, he was he was do illustrations for san, for fanzines for 10 bucks. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone was selling their small press stuff. And I, I started to notice that there were quite a few Canadians involved in this thing. And it introduced me to comics fandom. I, I had no idea that it, there was such a thing. And um, if I had known when I left all my Marvel stuff behind, I, I you know, I, it may have gone in another direction. Uh, but I didn't know. I wasn't aware of the fact. At a certain point, I thought, you know what, this is way too juvenile. I'm just got to leave it behind, right, and get on with my life and uh, other teenage pursuits. But um, little did I know that I didn't have to do that. Uh, but so I started getting interested. I just took note of all this small press activity, and I kind of got active with, uh, I started writing uh, science fiction fantasy. I was contributing to um, Gene Day's magazine, Dark Fantasy. So in addition to all his comic art, Gene was also a major illustrator, science fiction and fantasy illustrator in the small press, the, what they call the semi-prose, semi-prosines. And uh, Dave was, uh, and Denny were launching a, um, science fiction and fantasy magazine like Gene's Dark Fantasy. And I submitted a story to them and it was accepted. So Dave Sim? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Aardvark Vanaheim. Right. Okay. And uh, they had a little logo with, a, with an aardvark and a sword. And uh, they were going to publish this science fiction and fantasy magazine. Well, things fell apart on that front. And I think they may have got ripped off by a, by a printer. I know Gene had difficulties with a printer they were both intending to use. And then... That prompted Dave to think, well, why don't I, maybe I should just take that little guy and run with him and see what happens. And so that it became a comic book instead. And the rest is history. Yes. Dave Sim co-founded the small press publisher Aardvark Vanaheim. He's best known for his comic book, Cerebus, which ran from December 1977 to March 2004, totaling 300 issues. Sim was a strong advocate of self-publishing and was instrumental in the rollout of the Creator's Bill of Rights in 1988. As his career progressed, his work became more sophisticated and metaphysical in nature, but also a vehicle for some of his often controversial views. But so anyway, I started be, you know, becoming increasingly aware of the fact that there were Canadian comics. And in 75, well, 72, I saw I was working in bookstores and I saw the Hirsch and Lubert book. Mm -hmm. That was an incredible revelation to me. So that's the book, the great Canadian comic yes. books. And I thought, my God, there, there actually were Canadian comics. I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, I kind of hung on to that. And, you know, I, I remained interested in that. But 
there was nowhere to go with it. There was no, there was nothing else available. And um, then Captain Canuck appears in 75 and Orb appears on the newsstands in Halifax as well. And I, and I realized, oh my God, there's Gene Day, Dave Sim, all those guys that I saw in the buyer's guide. And um, there's stuff happening in Canadian comics. There's a, a lot of artists uh, out there. And, and um, I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of, and I, then I had discovered a few giveaways. Mm -hmm. And I realized there, there were comics published in Canada, but what, you know, what was the extent, how many publishers were there? So initially I thought, you know what, I'll do a little checklist for one of the uh, fan publications, Comic Reader or, or one of the other journals devoted to comics uh, fandom. And so I started working on that with a view to doing an article and uh, it just grew from there. Yes. Uh, you know, little did I know that, I mean, Bell Features wasn't the only publisher active in the 40s. Bell Features was one of the major Canadian comic book publishers from the Second World War era. LEC holds 382 comics from this publisher, including legendary superheroes Nelvana of the Northern Lights and Johnny Canuck. To be clear, this is a separate collection from the one John Bell donated to LAC. But when I first plunged in and decided to, to I really thought I was preparing a, a small article, a, a checklist, and uh, no. Not so much. No. <laughs> So clearly the extent of it surprised you. And so I it imagine, did, yeah. did your collection kind of balloon quickly? Did it take a while? Like to, did it start to get to a point where you felt like, oh my God, this is out of control? Oh yeah, no, it did for, yeah. I mean, as the white long boxes, you know, continued to, to fill, I thought, oh my God, you know, what is the, uh, where's this gonna end? Do I need a second house? Yeah, the, and the thing that really killed me in terms of collecting, but that went on for about 20 years, right? My, my collection, it took about 20 years to build. Mm -hmm. um, but what really made it impossible to continue, because that, that scope I developed over time, I didn't want to distinguish between self-published, small press. I mean, I thought a lot of their real creativity and energy was in the small press, and I really admired that. And so... I didn't distinguish, it, it, for me it was original comic published in Canada. I wasn't interested in the reprints. That's what I was hoping to document in English. Mm -hmm. And regardless of format or where it was published or by whom it was published. Um, but what really made it impossible over time by the kind of the late, mid to late 90s was something as simple as uh, evolution, the evolution of photocopy technology. Oh, yeah. Because, see, I also, I connected with Sim and, and Gene and those people through a magazine. I published a Canadian science fiction magazine titled Borealis. I did uh, two issues of that. And um, I, in order to do that magazine and to make it look professional or semi-professional, I had to lay the thing out. I, I did all my typesetting in an IBM Selectric and then shot it down 30%. So I, I did three columns. I did all the design and layout work myself. It was literally a kitchen table thing. And, uh, but that was offset printing. That's expensive. I had to get PMTs made. I mean, it was really an expensive undertaking. Um, I got a bit of a break because the, the, the printer in Halifax who I was working with was just, he just thought this was, so cool 
comics and science fiction and uh, he was having fun doing it just like your your designers have had so much fun working on your show uh, people love this stuff right and uh, so I got a bit of a break but nonetheless it was an expensive thing to publish a decent looking black and white comic even black and white comic but photocopy technology by 96 97 90 late 90 yeah 95 let's say it was pretty good. It almost looked professional, you know, and, and this is the era where Chester's coming out with yummy fur and uh, selling on the streets of, uh, you know, Queen Street West and 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 uh, that whole milieu is emerging in Toronto. But those that kind of small press scene that's happening all over the country as people, uh, you know, respond to other people doing that. Right. And so you see this explosion of minis. They're everywhere. A lot of them are they're very, very local. They're not, they're not advertising in the buyer's guide. They're handing them out on the streets of, uh, you know, Winnipeg, Montreal, uh, Hamilton, uh, Saskatoon, uh, Dartmouth. Um, so how could, you know, then my goal of being exhaustive, well, I had to abandon that. I knew that it would then become a collective thing if the story was going to be told from a bibliographical point of view, right? If you're going to document it all in an authoritative way, you would then need a team of people. One person couldn't do it. And uh, I tried. I corresponded with, you know, everyone. Everyone I, I would often go, uh, you know, I'd see example of something. So then I correspond with the artists and they say, oh, no, that that's like, a, that's not my first mini. I did 15 others and, you know, I've got... I got, you know, maybe 10 of them left. And, uh, you know, so I, I corresponded with a lot of people, tried to continue it, but I, I was starting to get exhausted, frankly. Uh, and there was real fatigue building. I thought, you know what, I've done my bit. I probably pushed this as far as I could. And uh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of like uh, thinking sort of, you know, archivally, bibliographically about original order. I'm wondering, like, did you have a system for keeping it organized? It must have been a challenge to f remember what you had. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do it so much as, again, because it was, a, for me, a research collection. I did it, uh, I did have a record, but it wasn't necessarily of my collection. I had an ongoing bibliography mm -hmm. that I would continuously update. And then as for the comics themselves, I basically, unless they were oversized, I just kept them in long boxes in alphabetical order, regardless of format. And uh, so I kept it simple that way. Interesting, because we have them in, in alphabetical order now. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> so. Well, I remember the day uh, after I donated it um, and Michelle began work on it with, with Kevin and, and, and um, I had a sabbatical, kind of a self-financed sabbatical that dragged on for almost two years in Nova Scotia. I went back home and was living in Lunenburg County for two years. So then I came back and though Michelle uh, grabbed me and said, you've got to come see your, your collection. And I, you know, I had had it stuffed in these long boxes, almost as tightly as you could put the stuff in there. But he, he had them all now in Mylar, each individual comic was in Mylar. They were out on the library shelves and spread out that way. I, I, I have to say that I was impressed. It's, I thought, oh my God, I collected all that. It does take up a lot of shelf space. Yeah. 
But of course, even after I gave it up and handed it over to you, to you guys, I, well, then I would stumble on things. Yeah. You know, I thought, if I don't buy these mini comics now, right, no one's ever going to document these things or collect them. So, you know, every once in a while, you'd get another little donation from me because I just felt somebody should preserve this and document it. Megan asked John if there were any comic book finds that were particularly exciting to him. I was excited about any new Canadian comic that I found. So I didn't really, I didn't really care. I didn't distinguish between them particularly. So uh, if it was new and I hadn't documented it, I felt like I had accomplished something. Uh, but um, I did go into a comic book shop, which was mostly a science fiction bookstore in Halifax, but there was a comic uh, component as well. And uh, the guy who ran it knew me, and he said, I got something Canadian you might be interested in. And I said, oh, okay. Pulled out this long box, and it was the compilation volumes in my collection, the Bell Features. It was full of those. Oh, wow. uh, other Bell Features comics, Bell's features original negs that they shot the comics from. Um, some Bell features pre-comics advertising projects in downtown Toronto. And manuscript material. Oh, wow. Correspondence. Their correspondence with uh, Archie Comics on the reprints. And uh, sampled contracts. And... Uh, I said, where'd you get this stuff? <laughs> in, um, why is this in Halifax? He kind of fudged it. He, he said, I got it from a guy from Ontario who knew Bell or, you know, never really did nail the provenance down. But I thought, I got to take this, right? I've got to rescue this stuff. Safe to say, yeah. But yeah, I'll, I'll provide it uh, with a good home. So, yeah, that was, that was a surprise. I mean, to think that I would find original Bell Features manuscript material. And so I added, that was donated to the, to the archives and you've got the comics and. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you ever have like a sort of a white whale? Was there any title that someone told you, you know, I heard about this Canadian comic and you took, I don't know, years to track it down or anything like that? No, I don't think so. I, no. Nothing comes to mind in that uh, vein. <laughs> they were all white whales. Yes. There was way more than one white whale. <laughs> The whole you know? ocean of Moby yeah. Dicks. <laughs> I mean, you think about you're trying to document an aspect of Canadian publishing where, I mean, apart from the library's legal deposit holdings, right, and the stuff that came in with Bell Features, and there are few scattered copies of Golden Age comics and some archival collections uh, out west. I mean, there, in terms of English Canadian comic book publishing, there was there was nothing. There were no holdings. There was no record. There was no there was no bibliography. There was no uh, historical narrative there was uh, there was nothing so they were all new discoveries they were all white whales <laughs> or minnows or whatever but. <laughs> um can you share do you have a few like favorite items from the collection any favorite artists or well i think in terms of the my favorite part of the collection would be the mini comics and the early small press stuff um i just think there's so much creativity and energy uh, wrapped up in those publications, especially that first wave, you know, in the and late 80s, early 90s. Um, I, I find that stuff really exciting visually and 
And um, so that, I think that's probably my f favorite part. And, and the golden age stuff I'm kind of fond of. I, you know, I'm fond of that. And yeah. you've got one of my favorite images in the, in the exhibition, which is that Nelvana cover in color. Yes. You know, that's uh, spectacular. Yeah, and quickly becoming a pretty well-known image. That should become too. an icon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, Canada's first superheroine. Yes. As we know, she predates Wonder Woman even That's a little right. bit. So, yeah. We all love Nelvana. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'd, I'd just like to say that I'm really happy to see that the collection's being utilized finally, you know, and that uh, other people are... I mean, the reason I collected it so that I could eventually do my own narrative of Canadian comics history, but I donated it so that other people could use it and and tell it perhaps different stories or focus on different aspects. And I think you've done a wonderful job in the exhibition, and I'm glad to see that other scholars are coming in and drawing upon it. That's why it's here. And so that's very gratifying. And uh, because, you know, one temptation when I started thinking about 95, 96, that it was time to relinquish those comics, um, is, you know, I could have easily broken it up and sold it off piecemeal. But I didn't want to do that. I mean, an awful lot of effort had gone into accumulating it all. I hoped that I could find a home for it. And uh, I'm really glad to say that um, I'm happy that I found the right home. Well, I'm glad. And I will tell you, the comic books are some of the most often requested material that we have. So, Fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, it's really, it's a growing area of research. So we, we are very lucky to have your collection. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you again for being here. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. To learn more about the John Bell Collection of Canadian comic books at LAC, please visit the episode page for this podcast at bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts. In the related links, you will find a number of resources related to his collection. You can also learn about how to make a donation to Library and Archives Canada here. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Geneviève Morin. You've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. We hope you've enjoyed the second edition of our donor interview feature. We'll keep you informed about some of the amazing collections we receive thanks to our very generous donors. Special thanks to our guest today, Mr. John Bell, and to Special Collections Librarian Megan Scanlon for conducting the interview. Never miss our podcast by subscribing with RSS, iTunes, or Google Play to automatically receive new episodes. For more information about our podcast, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at bac.com dash lac.gc.ca slash podcasts.